caught my attention. I kept watching them as they went about their daily lives in a land that was foreign to them. There was something unique about this family. It was a husband and a wife and their two sons. I'm not sure what intrigued me about them. Maybe it was the way they adapted to the new land. Maybe it was the way they spoke in the presence of others or the way they treated one another and others as well. Or maybe it was the sense of peace about them. It was as if someone went with them through every moment of their day. Whatever it was, I wanted to meet these people because I saw something in their lives that was missing in my own life. I wanted what they had. But what in the world were they doing in Moab? If you remember, we weren't exactly on the best of terms. In fact, I was pretty sure that they despised us. So why would they flee to the land of Moab? Rumor had it that they were fleeing from a famine in their land, but as far as I knew, they lived in a land where all of their needs were met. They worshiped a God who gave them more than they asked for and even more than they could ever imagine. So why would their faithful protector and provider suddenly cease in his faithfulness? Why would he cast something so horrible on their land that they had to move to a new place and start life all over again? Had their amazing God forsaken them? Or had they forsaken their God? Whatever it was, I wanted to know because it had to mean something more. God wants to live in relationship with you and with me. And the story, really, that we've been looking at for the last several weeks, starting with in the book of Genesis, it's really about a God who cares so much that he would give us a perfect world. And uh, that we can live in that perfect world, a world in which to live in. And then would in that design, in that design want you and I to talk with him, to to spend time with him, to be in fellowship with him, to experience life with, with him. And as you know, it didn't take long for us uh, until we just messed that up completely. In fact, it, when you look back at, the, at last week and you think about the book of Judges, uh, you're reminded that uh, of the fall that how they fell again and again and again and again and again. And because Judges really is for us, I think, that a constant reminder that in spite of the fact that God sent leadership in order to bring Israel back to God, that they continually fell, whether it was Samson or Gideon or Deb, Deborah and, or who could forget about old Ibzon, right? Um, whether it was uh, any of those, we, we just couldn't keep it together. And we entered the land. We, that really was the promise. We entered the land. In the book of Joshua, we would come to a place uh, so that we would be involved in the land. And God opened that door, that miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And there, there is that opening story where Israel encounters their first city. Jericho, if you remember. They, for six days, they were to march around the city and, and not say a word, right? 
but walk around the city once each day, and then on the seventh day they walk around it seven times, and then they give this loud shout, and what happens is that the, the, the walls fall down. And, and that amazing story of God's providential care and his leadership in giving them this land, and it's just days later, they go down the road just a little bit to a town whose name is uh, as small as it sounds, A.I. <laughs> and yet they're defeated by the soldiers of A.I. because somebody in Israel's camp decided not to keep the covenant. That is the story. In fact, when we come to the end of the book of Judges, we end up with this particular comment. You'll see it on the screen here in, in Judges uh, chapter 21. Verse 25, in those days Israel had no king. Look at this next one. Everyone did as he saw fit. And that's the re recurring line in the book. Everyone did whatever they wanted. And Ruth muses over whether or not something more was going on behind the scenes. Why would this Israelite family leave this land of plenty where there were prom where, where they were promised milk and honey and they ate, they ate other people's crops. The answer to a good Jewish reader would have been pretty simple, I think. They would have understood why. See, that's really part of the difficulty, I think, that we have in engaging this story is because, frankly, we live on the other side of Calvary. We already know the end of the story. But if you're Jewish, if you're trying to figure out how Israel ended up in the condition that they're in, you, you, you would have, have read the story wanting to know what's going on to cause God to just simply disappear. And here's what you would have discovered. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Right in the heart of God, giving the law, comes this comment. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and He will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Drought and famine, they were the direct result of Israel's failure to keep the covenant. And so here we are, engaging this story as a, as a Jewish reader, trying to figure out the plan of God. And, and, and suddenly we discover in chapter 2 the, the introduction of an idea that has been foreign to what Israel has been uh, thinking. Ruth has met Boaz. This Moabitess is now encountering this Israelite, and she asks him this question in verse 10. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? A foreigner. Someone from outside of Israel is now at the height of God's story.
10 years have come and gone. Naomi has now lost both of her, her husband, Elimelech, and now both of her sons, Malan and Kilian. I married Malan, so I too was now a widow. Orpah had married her other son, Kilian, so she was a widow also. It was horrible. It was absolutely devastating, especially for Naomi. I often wondered how we would make it through all of this. So here I sit once again, wondering why. Why did all of this happen to such a loving, kind, and caring woman? And of course, why did it happen to me? I had found favor in the eyes of an Israelite, and now he was gone. Was it something I deserved? Or what was left for me now? More hurt? More sorrow? Or was something about to change?
of a concept that was going to be carried out throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament itself. Ruth came with Naomi back to the land of Israel only to discover that there was this man by the name of Boaz who took particular interest in her. And he was what they called a near kinsman. Goel is the actual word. This this near kinsman was a, a part of all of Jewish life that was, was so incredibly important to the way that they did life. Israel itself revolved around the land. You, you were an owner. You received a certain inheritance, and that inheritance had to stay within the family. In fact, if an Israelite was ever in a position where they had to give up their land or you know, to sell that land to someone else in order to survive, that land was only sold until the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, all debt was removed, and all land would be returned to its original owner. Land was always in the hand of the firstborn son. And it was passed along in that lineage. And, and you know, in Ruth's story, Elimelech and, and, and both sons have died. Malon and Kilian. So Naomi has no one to go home to. There's no one to leave this land to. And so the near kinsman has the responsibility of entering into the family lineage. Not only did they purchase the property on the behalf of the next of kin, but they also took the responsibility to be the husband and to produce an heir so that that, so that, that Uh, so that that could be the family property. He had this redemptive responsibility. So in in Ruth's case, Boaz, he's not really the nearest near kinsman. He is next to the nearest kinsman. He enters this uh, conversation with Ruth, and and he discovers that that he really is willing to buy Elimelech's land and and to have Ruth as a wife. But there's there's this person that's in the way who's able to purchase the land instead. Now, Boaz, you read this story, he's really a man of character, but he's also a person who has enough wit to know what to do. And so he goes into the city. He, he stops at the city gate where all of the elders are. This is where all of the business transactions occur. And he waits until the ten elders of the city, they all kind of gather there, and, and his near kinsman comes by. And he has this conversation with him. You know, you're the next, he says to him, you are next in line for Elimelech's land. And if you want to buy that land that belongs to Naomi's family, you certainly have the right to do that. If you don't want it, I'll take it. And obviously he wanted to buy the land, so he says, well, no, I'll take it. At which point Boaz says, oh, and, and by the way, Not only do you get the land, but you also get Ruth as a wife. (laughs) He decides he doesn't want another wife, and so he he, he backs out of the transaction, and that left Boaz to, to purchase the land and to take Ruth as his wife. And there's really kind of this odd exchange that occurs. Maybe you read about this, but property was determined by how far you could walk, Right? 
And so to complete the transaction to purchase the property, one would take off his sandal as, and, and, and they would hand that to the other person. It was a way of saying to him, I can no longer walk this property. Isn't that interesting? And so we have that story unfold before us in the book of Ruth. Boaz becomes the near, near kinsman. He becomes the purchaser. And that introduction, introduction is to help us understand an image that is now going to carry itself all the, way out, all the way through the Old Testament, right up to the day of Jesus. The term of, jo- of choice that in the book of Isaiah, for example, is that he is our near kinsman. He's the one responsible to purchase us. The New Testament word for that that is introduced to us at that point is this. He is our Redeemer. Our Redeemer. So day after day, I would go in the fields with Boaz. Naomi didn't want me to go to any other field after she saw the abundance of food we received from this kind and generous man. She also saw that there was something about Boaz that made him different than just about any other man. And she knew that he was one of our kinsman redeemers. Kinsman redeemer? What in the world is that and what does it have to do with me? I just moved here and I don't know about all these things. But Naomi seemed excited about it, so I figured the kinsman redeemer must be something very important. I only knew that I trusted her and I would follow wherever she led. Day by day, I went to the field, always wondering why Boaz would have favor on me. Here I was, a widowed, poverty-stricken Moabitess with nothing to offer. I was totally ashamed of my past. And as far as I was concerned, very unworthy of his love and kindness. I was an outsider, an alien, and yet Boaz had noticed something in me. Did he look past all the stuff in my life? Could he forgive all the detestable things that I had taken part in? Was he seeing something in me that no one else cared enough to see? Now Naomi saw more in me, but... This was a man of God, a man of character and compassion and kindness. What did he want from me? After much encouragement from Naomi, I finally told Boaz that I had feelings for him. It was then that I found out that he wanted to purchase me. Now, there were several things that needed to happen before Boaz Boaz and I could be married. But as always, the Lord is good and everything happened according to his plan. And after we were married, I gave birth to a son whom we named Obed. And as a mother, I wondered, what will he grow up to be like? What will his life become? Will he be like his earthly father, generous and noble in character? My prayer was that he be a man of God, a man after God's own heart. And who knows, if God can take my life and make it something amazing, who knew what he might do with the life of my son? I could only imagine what might happen. And so we come to the end of my story. As it says in God's word, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation 
who fear him and who do what is right. My life is irreplaceable in the full telling of God's story. It is absolutely essential. I never would have imagined that the words I spoke to Naomi so many years ago would so entirely change my life. Not to mention ultimately changing the world for you. Obed is not the most common name in the Bible. I think you know that. We could probably come to church here and for, for weeks, years even, and probably not even hear his name mentioned. <laughs> Yet in the story of Ruth, he becomes fundamental to the major story God is telling to the rest of us. Ruth marries Boaz. They give birth to a son, Obed. The birth... It's, it's such a significant issue in this story. In fact, at the wedding, the elders of the city have comments to make and their dreams for Ruth and, and Boaz. Look at, look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. This is just a remarkable passage. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses... May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Do you hear it there? It's the hope of birth. But do you see who, it, who it's tied to here? It's tied to Rachel and to Leah the beginning of the lineage. We all remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah, the bulk of the sons of Israel then coming from them, those 12 tribes. But here's the hope that, that in the birth of a son, somehow something significant can happen. Rachel-like, Leah-like. But then they go on. In verse number 12, look at this. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And you read that, and you just kind of wonder why that story is being introduced into this story right here. Perez, Tamar, Judah. It really is the story. And we remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the next person in the lineage should have been the firstborn son, but he's not. The next person that matters to us is actually the fourthborn son. And his name is Judah. Judah. I mean, just think of what that sounds like. Judah, because of all of history, we talk about the Jewish nation, Judah. And suddenly the lineage gets introduced. And yet we have this odd character, Perez and Tamar. Well, it's back to that near kinsman thing. See, Tamar was married to the eldest son of Judah. She was the natural person to carry the lineage, except that she had no children when the oldest son of Judah died. 
And so by right of law, the second son married Tamar, but Tamar didn't have a child by him either, and he died. And so the third son would have been the natural succession to marry Tamar to produce a son so that the lineage could continue. But Judah chose not to, to let the third son marry her. And so Tamar decided that she was going to take things into her own hands. And so she sat on the side of the road dressed as a prostitute until Judah himself came down the road. And we know the rest of the story. Tamar gives birth to Perez, an illegitimate son. And Perez becomes important to a particular lineage. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, <laughs> the father of David. David really is the name that we know. That's the lineage that we look to because it was through David's lineage that Jesus came. It was under King David that Jesus became king. And now all of a sudden this, four, this little four-chapter story tells us in a small way this grand story of God's perspective and of, of His redemptive history that, that He's in the process of buying His people back. But what this history really introduces to us is, is hope for people like you and, for, and, and me. See, there are four characters in, in, in Jesus' lineage that stand out by virtue of the fact that they are, first of all, they're female, all of them. And, 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 they're, and, and they're all named in the lineage there. They stand out because all of them are foreigners in the lineage. They are not Jewish. There's Rahab, there's, there's Bathsheba, there's Tamar, and there is, or Tamar, and there's Ruth. All four of those. Foreigners. And three of those four stand out because they are prostitutes or adulteresses. And yet here they are, right in the heart of God's story of redemption, because the story is that God is willing to redeem us all. That's the power of this story. That no one is beyond redemption. This little book is so fascinating. I think even in its structure, it, it, it really starts out like this. No king, no food, no son. And it ends up with the birth of a son and food and the arrival of a king. Kind of mirror image there, just kind of like two bookends just kind of coming together. It's, it's as if there's this mirror image placed over against the front of the story. That's really the story that God has placed a mirror image in your life and says it doesn't matter where you were, what you were, it matters what you become. It matters what you become. So we come to Ruth's story because Ruth's story is, is our story. Really. 
when you think about it, that God is in the process of, of redeeming fallen mankind and, and, and bringing them back to Himself. And, and He wants to do that today in your life and in mine. He wants to do that every single day in our lives. And I'm reminded of this, of this, of this uh, just a, a couple of verses in, in Acts chapter 3. It's the second time that the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. Uh, just listen to what he says. Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing. See, it may be that, that you are in a need of some refreshing in your life. I know I, at times, go through and... Do you ever need refreshing in your life? If you feel like you just need a fresh wind of the Spirit of God to just come and enter in and to just get you back on track, to maybe just bring you back closer to, to what God wants to do. Maybe it's just a, 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 a the needing, a, just, just really seeking the forgiving Spirit of God in order to walk in those, those refreshing winds that God wants to blow into your life. We all go through that. And so this morning, here's, a, here's really what I want to do. We're going to take a moment to pray. I want to stop at just the end of this. I want to just let you guys, whether you want to just re- pray in silence and just speak to God and ask God for those refreshing winds. But I invite you to use that time just really to open yourself up to God. If there are things that you need to confess, to, sim- to simply confess them to Him, to just give them to Him and And then we're going to ask, I'll close this off, and we're going to ask for him to bring his redemptive winds. So take a moment in silence. Take a moment to offer some things up to God, and then I'll close this off. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I think that so often we um, we act as if we've got everything all together. When the truth of the matter is, is that each and every day there's there's things that we need to bring before you. Uh, somehow, in the in, in in the back of our minds, we we just uh, we don't recognize that repentance and and seeking forgiveness are things that that need to happen not just one time in our lives and then we're saved and we can we can we get this uh, future home and but rather that it's a thing that we are always communicating with you because we love you so much because we want to do what's right and we recognize that when we come to you and we bring things before you 
that you just have a, a way of, of taking those things that hold us in bondage, that hold us, that just trap us and, and make us feel like, like we're worthless. And you can take them upon yourselves and help us to live a life that is just incredible and freeing. We don't have to live with the guilt. We don't have to feel subpar. And Father, so we come to you today uh, recognizing that we are in need of your forgiveness. We come, Father, today because like Tamar and, and, and the Tamars and the Rus of this world, we, we oftentimes need a second chance. We come to you today because you have promised us that if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just and would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so even now, God, as we, we, we come, we come seeking times of just refreshing, that you would step into our lives and just open and pour open the, 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 this, your spirit upon our lives, those winds, of, uh, those winds of, of refreshment upon our lives. I pray that in the hearts and the lives of every person here today, that your spirit would sweep away the guilt and the pain that we ha sometimes have, and that your spirit would provide a sense of presence and provide a sense of refreshing. Maybe once again walk in your fellowship through Jesus, son and king like David. We pray this in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.